Prior to COVID, my organization did all its work at our office with no remote work. Since COVID, a morale committee was put in place and hosts monthly get-togethers on Zoom. I am a younger and newish employee with big goals to work my way up the chain at this organization. When I think about positioning myself for my longer-term goals, I'm wondering if it makes sense to attend these get-togethers. On one hand, I don't want to come across as arrogant. On the other hand, I don't want to be viewed as one of those friendly young employees by the more senior-level employees at our organization. Any advice? I'm sort of laughing at the comment about I don't want to be viewed as one of those friendly young employees. I'm like, what's wrong with being a friendly young employee? I mean, (laughs) I'm putting myself in this person's shoes and I get it, right? Like you're like, I want to be where the execs are. I'm serious. I'm a serious person. Yeah, I'm a serious person. And yet I I err on the side with this kind of thing. Like I do think it could come across as like arrogant or just not participatory or not engaging. And, And to me, like what do you have to lose? You go to one meeting of this morale committee, you get to see what it's about. Maybe you like it and you look like an engaged person. Maybe you don't. Like, I don't know the culture within the organization. And I feel like there's probably something underlying this question. Perhaps like, you know, none of the senior execs would be caught dead in the morale committee. And it's really just for the younger people. But, but I also think not attending really sends a message and doesn't help you make friends with your peers. And also if how do you know, like maybe one of those execs created, I'm assuming maybe they created this committee or they take pride in it and they want to see your engagement. So I just feel like there's a whole lot of kind of stories. The person who wrote this may be telling themselves in their head that may not actually exist unless there's been some blatant outright, like, you know, dissing of the morale committee or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I, I get the I get the reticence to participate on a Zoom happy hour call. That's like something that for me, just me as a person, I would find that uncomfortable and irritating and would try to come up with as many excuses <laughs> as I could to not participate in that. <laughs> it's like there's nothing stupider than sitting in your house. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? so, but, but so, But I do think that you don't. It's hard, right? You don't want to you don't want to come across as like being above it all. Like, no. I'm not going to do that, right? Because because people want you to be you should be friendly in an office, right? You should be known as a friendly person, like and 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 there are ways to like that I've learned over my career to fake that in a way that makes people think you're really really friendly when in reality you're probably not that friendly. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the so one of the things that I used to always do is like whenever and and it's it's funny it wasn't ever intentional it's because I've got terrible eyesight and when I look I'm looking at my computer and someone would walk into my office like I would have to physically turn my body to them and let my eyes refocus on them because I couldn't know who it was. Like it takes my eyes that long to, to go from like the screen that's right in front of me to the person that's at the door. And, and someone once mentioned to me that like, they just always feel so welcome when they come in my office because I just turn my whole body to them and give them all of my attention. And it's, it wasn't trying to do that. Right? <laughs> I wasn't trying to give them all my attention. I just like, I don't know who it is. Like it could be a dinosaur or a shark or something. I got to figure out who's at my door. It's a survival instinct. So, so, but, but having that reputation is somebody that's willing to listen and somebody that's willing to, I mean, that's something that's going to be good for your career over the long run. So, so maybe fake it a little, <laughs> like, just, even if you hate it, like I wouldn't, um, you know, you don't have to stay till the end. You don't have to, but, but sorry, you're going to want to gauge the sort of culture of your organization. You say you're new. So maybe this is just, this is when all of the actual like communication happens is at this stuff, right? You don't want to think about from a career perspective or from a work perspective, 
inevitably, if you get a bunch of work people together, they're going to start talking about work at some point. You probably want to be part of that conversation. So, so maybe you can come up with reasons that it isn't the most excruciating, awful thing you could imagine to do on a Thursday night. And I also think a morale committee has, there, there is some, there's probably some reluctance if it might have been a different kind of committee. I'm wondering if the morale committee itself, because is that sort of implying I've that got morale issues, right? right? Yeah, or like, geez, that. I'm real. Yeah, like, I'm just yeah. like, yikes, if that's called that, I'm kind of scared. But <laughs> anyways, I mean, that's pretty overt, right? But like, I also think to like, yeah, as a new employee, does it hurt to go once? Once, stick it out, check it out, say, hey, like introduce yourself. I don't know how large this organization is, right? Like, and hey, I just wanted to drop in and just say, hi, I'm new and, and just get to learn more about this this group. Like, literally, it could be that once and you never have to do it again. To me, I think not doing it, especially like you have the opportunity as a new employee to kind of set a fresh start. So you get to kind of experiment and try a bunch of different things and see what feels right and, and see Perhaps it surprises you and you really like this morale committee, although I'm just kind of <laughs> giggling at that because. Yeah. yeah. One of the good news is I think we're maybe, and I don't want to say it out loud, but we may be coming out of that too, right? Yeah. Vaccines, people are starting to be able to get together. The, the rules are changing. So, so maybe you don't have to do the whole awkward Zoom thing for more than once. Right. Maybe it's going to be over soon. And then and then we've got a whole new question about like I'm in a room full of these people and it's one big click and I'm alone in the corner. And yeah. That. Yeah. But that's a different question. That is a different question. So, <laughs> hey, wink, wink to our listeners. You can ask us that. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything. The podcast about everything nonprofit with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Shurek. I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Stacy Wedding, and we're here to answer all of your burning nonprofit questions. So the way the podcast works is you send us questions. You can send us to them on Twitter, on Facebook at the Nonprofit Everything webpage, where you can also find show notes, by the way. Or if you want to go old school, you can leave us a voicemail. We have a voicemail line now. The number there is 702-900-4656. That number is also on the Nonprofit Everything webpage. So if you didn't just memorize it like that, you can go and find it there. Um, If you send us questions, we will do our best to answer them or we'll find nonprofit experts either here in the community or out of town and have them answer those questions for us. Uh, That happens a lot. We're really excited to share experts with us. Um, If you have any comments or questions that you want to know about the podcast itself or if there are things we can do better, we love to hear that too. Um, And just to remind you that this podcast is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, if you're not familiar, is the state association for the state of Nevada. Um, They're also having a, they're finally having a conference again. We're getting to do another conference. So the 2021 fall conference is going to be down in Las Vegas this year at the LGBTQ Center of Southern Nevada. It's currently scheduled for October 14th and 15th. So save that date. I'm sure we'll be talking more about it in future episodes, but um, put that down on your calendars, October 14th and 15th, and and maybe we'll get to see you live. And with that, we're going to jump right in. Our organization is small. 
$200,000 annual budget. We will be completing the Form 990 soon for the end of our fiscal year. And looking at our past 990, I realized we have not been reporting in-kind donations. What are the rules around this? Is there a threshold for when these get reported on the 990? What systems do we need to have in place for tracking in-kind donations, especially when we're a small organization of one staff? Oh, I think you are miss- you're missing an opportunity by not tracking in-kind donations. Um, so, so just to sort of back up a step, just in case somebody doesn't know what that is. So what an in-kind donation is, is when someone gives you something of material value um, for free. So, so like, for example, the food bank, like all of that food that comes into the food bank, that's, that's effectively an in-kind donation and that's got a value. And you can bet that that food bank is absolutely checking the value of all of that product. They're first of all, their auditors want to know what it is, but that's what, that's the bulk of what they make. The bulk of what they receive in donations is food and the bulk of what they distribute, one would hope is food. And so that's why the food bank looks as big as it is. Like that's not cash at all. That's just food going in and out, which is tracked as in-kind donations. Um, There's no limit. There's no like, you know, it has to be a threshold. If you get more than $10,000, it becomes in-kind. The rules are that in-kind donations have to be something tangible and physical. So if you have a PR person that says, I'm going to give you 20 hours of free PR every month that you can, you will, you can use our services for 20 hours a month. That actually doesn't count as in kind. There's no such thing as an in-kind service. And the real, the reason is not, it doesn't have anything to do with the nonprofit side. It has to do with the donor side. Cause what the, what the IRS is trying to stop is the, that PR company that says, Oh, by the way, like our time is worth $400,000 an hour. And so we've yeah. given away all these donations. And so that's all tax deductible as a business expense, even though we haven't really expended anything. And so now we don't owe any in tax, right? So so what, what they're trying to prevent is the donor um, make like inflating, massively inflating the value of what their donation is. And also there's no real there's no real standard. Like when, when somebody donates a thing to you, that thing has a market value. It's what you could sell it for. So if somebody yeah. gives you a computer, the market value of that computer is what you could sell it to somebody for. It's the fair market value. And since products and items and things like that, you can assign a fair market value to really easily. The way you assign a fair market value is figure out what someone would buy it for, yeah. right? It's, and it's a pretty straightforward process. Um, anything you can assign a fair market value to, that way you can claim as an in-kind donation. If you can't figure out what a fair market value is, and that's services, that's intangible stuff, um, you can't claim that as an in-kind donation. And 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 this happens all the time. Like so, um, you'll you'll get uh, somebody will do some services for you, and they will they will write like on their invoice, like they'll they'll invoice you for two hundred dollars, and then they'll say in-kind donation two hundred dollars. And, and you have to explain, it's uncomfortable, but you have to explain to them, like, I can't give you a donation receipt for that other $200. The IRS won't allow me to do it. Right. right? That's the, always the yes. answer is the IRS will actually, yep. you can it's claim whatever you want fault. on your taxes. Yep. The IRS will not allow me to, to send you a donation receipt for that $200 of in-kind services. You can't see my air quotes, but they're air quotes, in-kind services, because <laughs> they're not in-kind. It's a discount. You're giving me a discount. A discount is a discount that's treated a completely different way. A discount isn't a donation. So, so, so yeah, totally claim those in-kind donations because what it does is it makes your nonprofit look bigger. So when somebody looks at your 990 and they're like, oh my gosh, they're like a $3 million nonprofit, even though you may only be dealing in, you know, $50,000 or $200,000 in cash. Okay. So I want to take this a, a step further and I, you know, I'm sure the person that wrote this, given kind of the scenario they, they 
presented is going, wait a minute here, like we didn't do this in the past. Could we get in trouble for that? So I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not that they are going to, quote, get in trouble for not doing that from if they got, I don't know, the IRS coming in looking at them. It wouldn't be like, oh, shame on you. You didn't claim an in-kind, in-kind donations you got. Um, yeah, probably not. Because so the what the, the IRS is concerned about really is the donor taking the tax yes. deduction for it, right? So if you're not claiming it, the donor's not claiming it, the IRS is like, like even though it's wrong, the IRS doesn't care <laughs> yeah. because they're not losing any money yeah, on the deal, yeah, right? Yeah. It's um, and where 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 nonprofits get in trouble for in-kind donations when they're overvaluing it. So you see this in um I haven't seen it in a while, but it used to be in like when you would send pharmaceuticals overseas. Like you'd have a company that would take like almost expired pills and then and then as a donation and then distribute them elsewhere and they would they would assign like the full fair market US value for the donation even though the fair market value for Namibia or wherever it's being distributed is different. Okay. So so the IRS would be like you can't do that that you can't arbitrage donations you're not allowed and they would come down like a you know a ton of bricks on the nonprofit for for saying that overinflating the size of what their donations are. It also because that's a program service that gets your program services and your your management in general, your admin from your financial from your um, functional expense statement that gets that out of whack too. So if you're claiming like all these program services, and that's another reason to check to like include in kind donations is because then that ratio that we always hate talking about yeah. of your program versus yeah. your admin, that ratio changes because program, all that in kind is part of the program bucket. Yeah, which is great. Not admin bucket. So right. so that's the IRS gets upset there. Um but they're but but the audit if you're getting an audit, the auditor should have caught that. Okay. Uh, so so I'm suspecting that either you're not get you're not to the level where you're getting an audit or even a review. Like nobody's looking at your financial statements and saying like where did this number come yeah, from, right? Yeah. So or or you've got all this stuff that you're bringing right. in and distributing, why aren't you counting that, right? That's something that the auditor would say. Okay. Um but nobody's going to get you in trouble for it, but you should start you should definitely start counting it. There's there's is no bad though, reasons to do it. Is it though? Okay. But here's a really practical reason. You're a one-person shop with the really tiny, you know, it's a tiny organization. You're wearing a hundred hats and trying to go in a million directions. So I I know it's sounding very simple from what you're saying, but like, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just like going, I'm thinking about this poor person, right? Going, I can't add one more thing to my plate. So like, do you have recommendations for a super streamlined way for them to do this like if they're going to do this right like is there a way I, I don't know to like lessen or is it just suck it up buttercup and guess what you uh well, part of my job as a <laughs> podcast host is to make things sound simple when they're not <laughs> so so i'm a little offended <laughs> but, so but but it's a donation. Someone is donating something to you, so they need to be acknowledged for that donation. They need to be acknowledged for the fair market value of that donation. That's just part of your job. So because you're taking that donation, you're responsible for treating it just like all the rest of your donations. I think, um, I think honestly, I mean, I don't, I can't read minds, but, but I think this question is probably thinking a little bit more of the services side. Okay. Right, that somebody's giving okay, them in-kind probably. services and they're not tracking that, which yeah. they shouldn't be. So yeah. if you're doing it right. There's nothing so to add. Relief. But if it's products, if it's something that somebody's literally donating things to you, you have to be acknowledging those because that's part of your job. Yeah. So figure, so, figure so it out. Once again, suck it up, buttercup. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say that. <laughs> Thank you.
heard people say our 990 can be a great marketing tool if done correctly. This feels uncomfortable to me. Shouldn't the 990 be an accurate reflection of our financial activity over the past year? It seems pretty black and white to me and doesn't seem like it should be a promotional tool. What am I missing? <laughs> That's a great question. It is. I love this it question. Um, so this has got to be from a finance person that's very black and white because I see this and I'm like, oh, my God, it's a marketing haven. <laughs> but anyways, so so recognize that one Stacey's I'm not going to steal Stacy's fire. I will talk about the financial side of it. So, yes, the the financial information needs to be accurate. Like there's nothing it's no I don't think when we're talking about making it a marketing tool, anybody would say juice the numbers, report <laughs> no. something different from reality. No, no, no. It 100 percent needs yeah. to be re- based in reality. But there are places where the where the 990 gives you the opportunity to um, elaborate on some of your programs. Like there's a schedule, it's called Schedule O, and it's like, basically it's a blank sheet of paper. And anytime it asks you a question like, you know, how much did you spend on this program services and what were the results? Like that's like literally one of the questions. And they give you, I think, five lines to cram a bunch of information in and a number. Um, you can either cram information in those five lines or you could put the number and you can write C Schedule O. On Schedule O, you can write as many pages as you want. You can attach marketing materials. Whatever you want to put on there, you can put in part of your your 990 because what Stacy is about to say, I'm guessing, is that it's one of the first things that major donors look at before they give money to you. They actually understand how to read it. And if you've used that as an opportunity to put more information in than you're legally required to put in if you're answering it perfectly accurately and succinctly, which is probably your instinct, like... Just get it done. Right. <laughs> like, right. Put the numbers in, sign it, get it out the door because it's due, right? Um, I think there's an opportunity there, yes. I think on all of the narrative sections, which there are some, right? Like expanding as much, using all the space you have makes, it, it, it shows transparency, shows what you're doing. You can share success and metrics in there. I, there's so much. So to the to the schedule you mentioned, but also just, you know, your mission, like you see people that don't even have necessarily, they don't even write their mission exactly the way their mission is on their website. Yikes, not good. Like there needs to be mm-hmm. consistency, right? Like I just, the other thing is there's that whole, there's that governance section mm-hmm. on the 990, right? Like does your governance, you know, does your board have a conflict of interest policy? All that. I'll tell you what, so many funders who maybe aren't in the weeds on all the financial stuff may look at some of those key things too and saying, how are you being governed, right? Or do you have a document destruction policy? Do you have like some of the questions they ask you? So um, I think that the other thing is, you know, that section where it shows you list your board members and you get to say like how many hours they put. I have never seen anyone put more than like one hour (laughs) a week or two. And it drives me a little nutty because I go, all right, I understand that maybe your board members aren't giving that much. But if you have an engaged board like that, that, I don't know, like, I think it's healthy to show someone who's engaged. I mean, obviously, we don't want like a huge number, because then that sends another red flag. But like, right, like something that's more than like, the bare bones. Um, And you know, that percentage, and I know this is one where you can't fudge it. But I don't think always people I had seen a 990 of a small organization recently that had 100% of the breakdown between kind of program fundraising and admin, they put a hundred percent in the admin category. And I don't, th- I think they just didn't know better because it's a volunteer organization, uh-huh. but I was like, yikes, no, 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 no. Like <laughs> it's, right. it's like, that's not right. Like <laughs> yeah. I actually think it's a huge percent in program and really small in the others. So, yeah. so I think just kind of educating yourself on some of those basics and 
And yeah, using this as a tool, especially with GuideStar, and, and I think it's called Candid now, like you go and that's the first place so many donors are going these yep. days. Yep. They pull it up. You're exactly right. And yeah, that governance section is huge. That's kind of like the cheat sheet for if you want to do better, like look at what the IRS is asking. And if, do you have a whistleblower policy? If you don't, you should get one yeah. and you should be able to check, you know, that's like, okay, next year we definitely want to check yes on this box. I think the challenge with the 990 is it's a tax form. And so your, your first instinct is someone running a nonprofit is like, oh my God, <laughs> I want to just give this to the bookkeeper and have them do my tax form. Um, so like recognizing that other people are going to read this with a development lens and not just the IRS, you may want to read through the whole thing. Make sure you understand it. Your board's never going to flag it, probably. Your board's not going to go through and go, how come we got all these things checked no that sound like they should probably be checked yeah. yes, right? They're not going to read it. No. Like they say they do, but they never do. It's a shame. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, go through that. I think the other thing, and this wasn't the question, another thing people don't realize is if you're getting a financial audit, you have the opportunity as a nonprofit in management to be able to add a letter to the front page of your audit. So the first page is like, you know, the auditor's opinion letter, right? And and I think the next page is, I actually forget which order it's in. You can put in a letter on your letterhead that talks about your program accomplishments for the year, because that's like another thing, like you're thinking about it as this requirement, but you should be thinking about it as a requirement that a funder is going to read. So you, any opportunity you have to be able to like talk about the wonderful things that you're doing in the community like that the donor is going to read, like you want to put that in there. Like that's just think about it as a marketing piece. Don't, don't disobey the rules. Don't cheat, do it right. But make sure you use every opportunity you can to tell the story you want to tell. Given some of the PPP funds our organization received during 2020 and some very kind, generous donors, we are very fortunate to be in a really healthy financial position. We have more than 12 months of operating reserves, and our board has decided we should be doing more with this money than having it sit in various banks, earning very little interest. As we begin to engage in an RFP process for an investment advisor, what should be included? What questions should we ask to ensure we don't compare apples to oranges? Is there something we need to avoid including in the RFP? Hmm. That's a good question. So, yeah, first of all, congratulations on getting enough money that you're thinking about investing it. But yeah, that's the scary step, right? Because your board wants you to invest it. And sort of over, over time, my experience is that boards are incredible incredibly conservative when it comes to investments. They want like the lowest possible risk ever. And then, and so you don't feel like you're ever going to be able to make those decisions yourselves. And you probably, you probably shouldn't. It's a good opportunity to sort of hand it over to an expert, but you're right. The next step is like, is it an RFP? And so if I can recommend a, the CFA Institute, Certified Financial Advisor, I think. Okay. Um, so, so it's a certification process where you'll see investment people will have CFA after their name, right? And so that comp, that's a nonprofit and it does the certification for these people. But then they also have on their website is they have some sample RFPs for selecting an investment advisor. And Go look there. We'll put the link in the show notes. You can look at that. But what you're going to notice is it's 16 pages of incredibly dense questions, most of which you probably wouldn't even be able to interpret if it was answered properly. And in my experience, no one ever actually responds to the RFP. The <laughs> That's way. overwhelming. It yeah. scares them away. Yeah, yeah. And it's huge. I mean, it's, I guess, you know, it's the bar, you know, you want to, you want people to do it, but what they do is they kind of half answer it and then they just give you the sales presentation, right? 
Um, so, so I think that's something to look at as a starting point. I would be, you know, talk to your, if you have a finance committee, you've got an audit and finance committee. I'd talk to the folks on your audit and finance committee and say, here's an RFP I found on the internet. It, it looks reasonable. Do we want to use something like this or do we want to generate something ourselves that's similar? Um, part of the problem is, is when, when you, you know, the reason you want to do an RFP is that you want to kind of have an, like you said in your question, apples to apples comparison between different investment advisors. And an RFP gives you that apples to apples, except when they don't actually respond to it. Um, and then you're sort of fall back on their sales presentation, like who's the nicest, you know, who showed up most nicely dressed or who seems the most polite or who knows the largest number of people on my board and other things that you really shouldn't use to determine whether or not that's an investment advisor you want, right? Yeah. My experience is with these kinds of things, it tends to be a popularity contest as with many RFP processes, right? Like, yeah. but, but you hear all of us know and probably can rattle off the names of 10 investment advisors and all people that are in our own network. So when this gets opened up to the board, it can very much become you know, definitely not not the right kind of scrutiny you want to use. I also am a big believer. I've seen organizations set up an investment committee that's maybe it could be an ad hoc just for this process, or it could be a permanent if you are going to go down that path, but, but separate from even their finance committee, but someone that you bring in some outsiders and experts in the community who can be a little bit more impartial and unbiased to make recommendations. So that's one thing. And then I think I think this is pretty basic, but but I'm assuming you're also thinking about, you know, there's always the difference between kind of short-term and long-term investment strategies. And when you talk to any investment advisor, they'll ask you, what are your plans for the future? Do you have any big expenses coming up, right? So I think so much of what you are planning as an organization should guide the way the RFP is structured as well. Um, so not leaving that, I mean, letting people know like this is, we're not sure exactly what we need to do, but we know we're going to need a big pot of money, whatever, in nine months or something or in a year, like that's going to be a very different process. And it's something that I think investment advisors don't always learn about until they begin working with you. And that can be really dangerous. Yeah. And just sort of one other piece of advice too is you're going to, if you have people on your board that are, that work for banks and those bank, all the banks now have investment companies that are attached to them, right? So there's, you know, the big bank will have somebody that they've recently bought, then that's their sort of investment arm, right? Um, maybe put those people on the investment committee when you're creating the investment policy statement about like, what do we want to invest? You know, are we comfortable with hedge funds? Do we want you know, do we want to invest internationally? Those kinds of bigger questions that they can help you answer. But when it gets to the actual selecting piece, you want to push those people aside and say, thank you for your work. I'd like you not to be part of this process because even though you can put aside the conflict of interest that the company you work for is also going to be pitching, like, I want to make sure that you're not involved in this because it's going to be really uncomfortable for everybody in the room. Like, and, and they'll acknowledge that most of the time. You don't want them pushing their own people or being unhappy that their guy didn't win or whatever the reason is. So, so find a polite way to get those people, like use them for their expertise in the setup process, but, but let everybody else be involved in the process of selecting the investment advisor and not the people that work in that world. It's just too much. It's too much of a conflict of interest risk. That's really good advice. And one other final thing I was thinking about is I have heard a lot of nonprofits 
be surprised when they ask potential people that they're inviting to submit an RFP. And one of their questions is, who are your other nonprofit clients? And they, for confidentiality and a whole host of other reasons, are not able to disclose that information. So don't be surprised if they come back to you and say, sorry, can't can't tell you that. Um, And I don't know what the rules or why that is, but I know every investment advisor I've ever worked with has always said, sorry, I can't tell you who my clients are. So I don't know if it's just a confidentiality and privacy thing, but I guess I would be sensitive to that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two sides. So so they're not going to give you their client list, number one, but you can rephrase the question in a way that gets you the answers you want. And so two things that I would do is one is once you get to the point where you're going to use somebody, ask them for references. I would like some references yes, of nonprofit clients. Great, they're yeah. they're not they're, you know regardless of how they feel about confidentiality, they're still going to give yes, you the reference yeah. list. Plus, everybody's friends in the nonprofit sector in general about this kind of thing. You can call anybody, talk to the finance person at wherever, and say, "Hey, do you guys have an investment advisor? How do you like them? You know, would you recommend anything? That kind of stuff." You can do that. The other thing you can do to sort of phrase the question differently is say. Can you tell me how many nonprofit clients you have and how much money you have under management with those nonprofit clients? That's a so great. you're getting like an aggregate number. Yeah. And that way it's like we have one client and it's 50,000 bucks or we have 30 clients and it's 72 million or whatever. You can get a sense of like how many how many people they have. Like one of those things on that giant RFP is like how many clients have you gained in the last 12 months? How many clients have you lost in the last 12 months? Tell us why you've lost the clients you've lost, Ooh. right? Like these really detailed That's questions. Great. That, yeah, and but I mean, are they going to answer? Uh, no, it probably not. Right? <laughs> Well, thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We really appreciate that you've taken the time out of your day to spend with Stacy and I. Um, we had some pretty cool questions this time come in, so we're always excited about that. As always, if there was something in the podcast that you think we could do better, if there was a question that popped up in your head as we were talking and it's something that you want us to address, or if you can think of a guest expert you want us to rope in and ask them some hard questions, we're excited about that too. So go ahead and reach out to us, Twitter, Facebook, the Nonprofit Everything webpage, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage, or our old school voicemail phone number, 702-900-4656. And with that, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.